And it's an interesting time to be alive as information is instant. What's happening around the world gets communicated quickly. And uh, we uh, also have um, the challenge of trying to find out or to process what is truth and what is uh, just kind of designed to manipulate our position and thinking. And all of that is kind of trying to feed into us uh, constantly. So we're trying to figure out, God bless you. We're trying to piece all that together. We're also living in a time that um, is like no other in the sense of human rights. We have human rights and our rights being upheld, right? Like no other time. Human rights, civil rights, we've gone to women's rights, gender rights, everything's rights. And so trying now to process all of that information as we kind of dive into the uh, Israel-Palestine Palestinian uh, situation around the world here is very difficult at times for us to understand. And so we want to kind of look at what the truth is. We also want to look at what are some of the myths. In order to do that, there's a few things that I want to lay before you. And that is, and as far as looking at scriptures, uh, we know that apart from the foundational principles that we hold to, uh, as far as the gospel message, there are positions that people hold uh, that kind of uh, steer in certain directions. So as a church and as uh, what we will be presenting kind of from tonight as far as the position we hold is that uh, God has a specific plan and purpose for national Israel uh, that he will continue to work through in the future. And so that's the lenses we're looking through when we look at this. Um, because if you look at certain lenses, I guess uh, in certain situations, if you have certain lenses, what's happening around the world really has little bearing on anything. But we're looking at it through lenses that uh, would say that God has a specific plan and purpose still for national Israel uh, as they will eventually turn to him as the Messiah and he will come and reign. So that's kind of where we're looking at. First, we want to start with Matthew chapter 24. I think it's important that we see from Matthew chapter 24 some of the things that are leading up to what's happening here. We'll start at verse 9. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation put you to death, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will increase, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. So when you see the abomination of desolation, spoken of by the prophet Daniel, Daniel 9, standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop go down and take what is in his house. And let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, 
Pray that your flight may not be in winter or on the Sabbath, for then there will be a great tribulation. Such has not been from the beginning of the world until now, no, and never will be. And if those days are not, uh, have, had not been cut short, no human being would have be saved. If you flip kind of over, you'll see that it continues through. And then in verse 29, it talks about the coming of the Son of Man. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with great power and glory, uh, with power and great glory. And he will send out his angels with a trump, loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. This is Jesus kind of giving us a foreshadowing of the future events. It's kind of predicting what will take place in the future. It's giving us some signs. These signs have been known as the birth pains. They will just continue to increase and increase uh, as they get closer to the end of the coming of the Messiah. Some of the things we want to look at are some of the truths behind the Israel-Palestine and a few of the things that we'll call myths, that these things are not truth, and we'll work through some of these things if you want kind of further information, I know you, many of you have your go-to people as far as who you view or what your information you're taking in, uh, but most of what I've gathered together tonight is from these sources. Uh, Gary Hemrick, Skip Heisink, Dr. Baruch, and Amir Safari. So, uh, Safari. so if you want kind of any other information, uh, those sources I find very reliable and very informative as far as this topic that we're looking at tonight. When we look at rights, who decides who's right and who's wrong? If our world today is a world based on rights, who decides? Well, whoever has the most power, whoever has the most influence, whoever has the most toys, whoever has the most whatever, right? You You can continue that list on and on and on. Who's your final authority? And so for us as Christians, our final authority who decides what is right is God and his word. So anytime we take an issue, we have to process it through the lenses of God's word. What does God say? What's the authority that he has given to us on this subject? This topic is like none other. It's the same process, right? So when I'm looking at Israel and Palestine, I want to look at, well, what does God say? Because he's the final authority. He is the one who decides what's right and what's wrong. Now, I may not understand some of it. I may not like some of it. But at least if I know this is what God says, I can stand on it confidently knowing this is what God says. Right? And that's what's most important. Because our world today, on based on these rights motif, hinges and focuses on emotion. If we can get the emotion involved in this, then it captures your attention and it captures your uh, kind of streamline, right, of which direction or where you want to stand on certain topics. And, and that's a dangerous game. We are emotional. That's not a problem. God made us and wired us that way, but we don't stand on our emotion. 
when it comes to topics, we stand on the truth. So remember, the world's coming at us, not necessarily from truth, but definitely from emotion. And we can all look at that, right? When we look at this conflict, we definitely look at the things that grab the heart. Those things are things we want to. to. But when we look at what God says, we want to stand on the truth. Okay, so for Christians, we have to do this. We want to hear what God says. So what does God say, first of all, about the land? Right? This isn't about what the world says. This is about what God says, because that's where we found in it on, right? Deuteronomy chapter 11, verse 12, gives us our first and primary thing. about what does God say about the land? Well, we find that Abram at that time, Abraham, right? He was chosen by God. He was handpicked by God, and God had promised to Abram, who he changed his name to Abraham, he promised him and his descendants land. That's a promise from God, right? So Deuteronomy chapter 11, verse 12 was the first indication. So number one, when we're looking at this, uh, you've got to conclude that the land is God's land, right? All of God's creation is God's creation. Uh, So if we could say the ownership of creation is God's because he created it all, and if God has chosen a certain land, where's the ownership and who has the responsibility of that? God, right? God owns the land. The land is God's. Psalm 21, David affirms, or the psalmist affirms that the land is God. Leviticus 25, 23 is, again, confirming the land is God's land. So number two, God gave the land to Abraham. So if you have ownership of something and I give it over to you, is that valid? Does that stand? It does, right? So God's land, God gave it over to Abraham and his descendants. Genesis 12, 7. Genesis 13, 15, he says it again, right? And he adds the words. This is an interesting debate and topic, but he adds the words. Forever. In Genesis chapter 13, 15. He again reaffirms affirms it again in Genesis 15, 18. And at that time, he gives the boundaries. This is God's land. God's chosen to give it to Abraham and his descendants. He said it's forever and he's given the boundaries of what they are. So number one, when we stand on the issue of what we see in the Middle East, what is where our go-to is? We recognize God's given the land to Abraham and his descendants. It's forever, and there's boundaries uh, given to us for that. So here's another interesting thought. We may or may not know this, but both Arabs and Jews come from Abraham. Right? We have Ishmael and we have Isaac. Both the descendants of Abraham, both those major players in that area. Okay, so both of them are descendants of Abraham. There are promises specific to Ishmael and the descendants of Ishmael. God did give promises to them. But who did he choose? All right, the land was given to Isaac, not Ishmael, right, in the scriptures. We recognize that Isaac was the one in which God was to give the land. 
Could God choose who to give the land to? Could he choose Isaac over Ishmael? Did he do it again in the next generation after that? Jacob and Esau. Now your interesting read is uh, Obadiah, where you will see Jacob and Esau and the end times battle between Jacob and Esau played out in Obadiah, which is a prophetic book dealing with all of that. A fascinating book. The land that was given, did it have any conditions on it? And that's where you'll get your debate. Okay, so if the land given to Abraham was conditionally based, then it was dependent upon how the nation of Israel, um, you know, fulfilled it. So if I keep these commandments or if I do what God says, I will stay in the land, and if I don't, I won't. But the land promise was not conditional. There were times of disobedience that God removed the people. There was a time of famine where God removed the people. But the land designation, all right, this is my perspective of Scripture, was not based on any condition of the nation of Israel. So this was going to last forever. It was unconditionally based. It was God all instrumental in this is what I am doing, not based on what you were going to do for me. And that's Genesis chapter 17, 7 to 8. It's an everlasting covenant. It's an everlasting possession. It's again reaffirmed in Psalm 89 as uh, Ethan, uh, who's writing this, gives the history of Israel and he lays that out. Okay, so the land was given to Isaac, not Ishmael, Genesis chapter 17. God said no to Ishmael, right? The covenant, which is the land promise, was not to go to Ishmael, although he would receive many blessings, okay? The land number five was given to Jacob, not Esau, right? Esau, again, firstborn. Esau, God in his foreknowledge already knew, Esau had no interest in land, in the inheritance, in the inheritance of the land. He literally had no interest in it because he sold his birthright. He sold his inheritance. He gave that up, that part of it, to uh, his brother Jacob for oatmeal or a bowl of stew. Right? He, he was uh, feeding his physical desires rather than looking at the eternal prospect. Of course, God had already chosen Jacob from the beginning of that time of conception, right? It was revealed to his mother that it would be going to, to a Jacob. And even though it seems like they've plotted and they've schemed to get this, they actually were just fulfilling God's promise in the first place. This is what God had promised to give the land to Jacob and not to Esau. So God's promises, Genesis chapter 28, verse 4, the promises again in Genesis 28, 13 to 14, It's to you and to your descendants. He's talking to uh, uh, Jacob. Genesis 32, Jacob wrestles with the angel of the Lord. And here's where in that wrestling uh, with the angel of the Lord, the angel changes his name to Israel. That's where we get Israel from. Jacob's name's changed, and it changes to Israel. This is the name that God gave him. In Genesis 35, 12, I will give this land to you and to your descendants. There's 400 years in Egypt because of a famine. While they're there in Egypt, the Pharaoh has put them into slavery. 
right? They are out of the land and they are in Egypt. The land then becomes populated by others uh, who have an opportunity to turn to the living God at that time. And we've looked at this a little bit in Joshua. Uh, but Moses is raised up by God to deliver them out of Egypt. Why? Because they're returning back to the land that God had designated. The promised land is the land we return to with Abraham. I'm going to give to this to you and to your descendants. So this is all wrapping up with Moses leading the people out. Uh, we know that he you heard this, right? We lead them to the promised land. They decide not to go. They wander around for 40 years. And then Joshua is the one that leads them into the promised land as we look at this. Israel's captivity. So Israel is then disobedient to the Lord. They turn to these other gods, to the gods of the nations around them, and God had warned them time and time again, if you do this and you continue and you do not repent, you do not turn from your ways, there will be a consequence. That's where the conditional part of it comes in. It's not land-based. It's on their obedience to the Lord and what they will suffer if they are disobedient. So God pulls them out, 722 B.C., pulls the northern kingdoms out uh, of the land and into uh, captivity. And uh, 586 B.C., the southern is pulled out. And these are pulled out for 70 years. Isaiah prophesies that this would be the case. They would be removed from the land for 70 years, but then they would return. And they return back under Ezra, Nehemiah, Zerubbabel, uh, these are the people that God leads to bring that pro- the people back into the promised land. An amazing story as these kings of Cyrus and, and Persia allow this to take place. Well, yeah, sure, go ahead. Go back into your land and rebuild uh, your land. They return to that land. In the time of Jesus, where, is the children, where are the children of Israel? In the land, uh, right, of Israel. They're there. They're going through that process And that land designation never changed. Now we know that there was uh, the Romans who came in and leveled it after Jesus. So about uh, 70 AD, they come in and they cleanse it and wipe it out. Uh, The people kind of are scattered, but then there's a return gradually to that land. uh, And we will kind of go through that with the myths. But uh, the, the land designation from the time of Abraham, given by God, the ownership was given, it's their land. We looked at the boundaries when we looked at Joshua. Right? That's, the, that's the truth of Scripture. So if you want to bank anything on what's my perspective of land especially, no matter what the world presents to you, that's, this is the land. God's land given to the children of Israel. So when you look at that, you want to look at, well, what are the myths? What are the things that are coming out that I need to wrestle with? Well, number one, Israel is historically a Muslim territory. Maybe you've heard that. There's a lot of Islam, a lot of Islamic uh, states, especially around Israel, uh, even within Israel, Islam. So the uh, falsehood is that Israel is historically a Muslim territory. Well, we have Scripture. Scripture tells us the opposite. It tells us what the truth is. We also have archaeology. We've gone through a number of spots in Joshua that confirm even archaeological sites of the time uh, of Israel, thousands of years before any of this, that there is Israeli artifacts, towns. It confirms what scripture says. 
It backs it up. So even the archaeology talks about what is the truth in this uh, matter. Uh, the third area of that is, I don't know if everyone really realizes this, but Muhammad was in the 7th century after Jesus. Right? So Islam did not come to be until after Jesus in the 7th century. Right? So their claims of the Muslim initially being the territory, and it logically doesn't add up. It can't. Right? It never was affirmed as a religious uh, thing until the 7th uh, century A.D. So where did Palestine come from? Again, I'll deal with the truth and the myth, right? This was the name given to the land by a pagan empire, emperor, right? And it was about 135 AD. So about 135 years after Christ, it was after the destruction right, of the temple of the city. Uh, there came this emperor. He renamed the city. And the name meant Palestinia, which was slang for the Philistines. So it was a jab at, right, the nation of Israel referring back to the Philistines themselves and Philistia, right? So it's a slur. So from that point on, that slur name came till about 1948, anyone living, anyone living in the land was known as Palestinian. Jew, Gentile, and others Arabs, anyone. You were living there, you were a Palestinian. This is where the land came from. And if you had a birth certificate up to 1948, you were Palestinian. So you start to get some clarity to information that we are facing. Obviously, in the most recent years, there's been a uh, redefinition of what Palestinian means because we've moved that into one category and left to Israel the Jews in another category. But in truth, Palestinian, until 1948, represented everybody in there, in that land area. Uh, number two, you may hear Israel's to blame. Right? So Israel's to blame because what, what's the premise on Israel's to blame? They're not cooperative. They won't give up anything. Uh, we hear still to this day, even from our neighbors, especially in the south, that we need a, a no, what, how will we get peace? Two state, two states, All right, two states will do it. Okay, so do we know our history? In 1917, the Declaration of Balfour declared, right, they originally believed that Israel would be an independent state and they promised the entire land of, uh, that's Palestine and Transjordan, all to Israel. Then there were revolts because of that. And because of the revolts in 1922, the, there was divided up land between Israel and Jordan. In 1947, the UN developed a resolution and they partitioned the Jewish and the Arab states, right? And the Jews accepted that proposal. But who did not? The Arabs, right? There's no way. We're not accepting that. So let's get kind of the history in the nation of Israel. Okay, yes, we can live with this. In a sense, two state at that time. 
Uh, but the Arabs are, no, we cannot. There's no way we're going to live with that. We're not accepting that. They rejected it. May 14, 1948, Israel is established as a nation. And you know your history? I wasn't around, sorry. The day after, all of the Arab states around them attacked. And yet, Israel survived. So the, the day after a national state of Israel is established, all of those nations around were bent set on destroying and eliminating Israel. And yet, they survived. In 1964, the Palestinian Liberation Organization, which today I think is called the PA, um, today, they called for, at that point, the elimination and extermination of the state of Israel. Right? But Israel's to blame. So in 1947, they declared this, no peace, no negotiations, no recognition of Israel. That's their stand, and that's their stance to this day. Right? That's what they believe in. In 67, there was war, the war against Israel, and they attacked again. However, Israel defended themselves and at that point gained actually a portion of land in that battle. 1973, Arab attacked again. Israel again defended itself and again actually ex- extended its borders. In 1979, Israel gave away much of its land to Egypt in exchange for peace. They said, you know what? We don't want war. We don't want this conflict. And so we're willing to give up some of the land for that. In 1993, the Oslo Accords. And as soon as the Arabs returned after the Accords, they started to attack Israel. Again, with no peace, no negotiation, no recognition as their uh, mantra. 2005, Israel gave the Gaza Strip to the Palestinians. Right. Oh, oh, but they're not interested in, in peace. It's their fault. Right? They gave it to them. And do you know what happened with that? Giving away of the land of the Gaza Strip? The Arabs voted 82% majority uh, for Hamas. Hamas. They voted in Hamas as their leading party. 82% vote. That was in 2005. Right? Ever since, Israel has been attacked. Right? Ever since. Now Israel is going to defend themselves. (laughs) They're going to go after Hamas. But it's their fault. That's what... Some have said, that's what some have proposed. We've got to make sure we understand the truth. And unfortunately, people take positions without investigation, without taking the time to look into history. And that's throughout a lot of things that we face today, right? You don't look at the facts. We don't look at the details. We don't look at those things. We could talk about the Hamas-Israel thing. We could talk about gender. We could talk about a number of areas and go, wait a minute. If you just look at logic and you look at some history and you look at some information, you will discover truth. Right? But if it's emotionally driven, who needs to go back and look? Number three, Israel is guilty of discrimination and racial segregation. So this would be another card played, right? The the myth that this is what Israel's about. Well, there are Arab citizens who are Jews, living as Jews, 
They have the exact same rights as the Jewish citizens of all Israel. In fact, 20%, they tell me, of all Israeli citizens are Arabs, non-Jewish. So they're the Arabs in there. Since 2021, uh, there's been an Islamic Arabic political party as a part of the Israel. So, and I think they have a, a acting parliamentary person who is uh, Arab and Muslim. So those are kind of the myths, and yet they're the truths that we find in God's word as we deal with this situation in the Middle East. It's a lot to process, short time, but if there's any questions, I don't have all of the answers, but maybe we can get some kind of information from each other. So the pro-Palestinian demonstrations, what are they wanting for the Palestinians? Great question. I'm not a part of them, so I do not know exactly what uh, the demonstrations are looking for. Um, my take it is, it, on it is it's emotionally driven and we're looking at war, so what the media has done is put, uh, if you are not for Israel, you are for Palestine. So there's no gray area. If you look at all these issues that uh, come about in the media and our world, those, that's what it is. It's divisive that way. You're going to pick one or the other. And then though we look at history and say their, you know, their position of no surrender, no negotiation still stands though to today. So it will actually mean this even though they say it doesn't mean this. <laughs> Thanks, Phil. Thank you. As Pastor Todd has said from the beginning, the land was promised, that's why they call it the promised land, to the Jews. So the Jews are the indigenous people of that land. They possess it. I cannot believe a word that comes out of the mouths of those that represent Hamas. 2005, Israel evacuated 40 plus thousand of their own people out of the Gaza Strip that they had taken, sorry, that they had come into in the late 1800s. They lived in tents. They planted certain kinds of trees, which I forget, which reclaimed the land. The land was very marshy. They worked to restore the land that God had given them. Meanwhile, the, the, pre, the, the occupants at that time had had the land for hundreds of years and had done nothing with it. They welcomed the Jewish people in until such a time 
as the Jewish people started to get more and more strong. The, palace, the people who lived there originally were employed by the Jewish people. There was a good working relationship. There was a good living relationship up until the time that they became stronger. And it's my understanding that the root cause of this is that born out of jealousy. God chose um, Isaac and Ishmael um, was not chosen to possess the land, to own and possess the land. In 2005, when Israel evacuated the people out, it was a thriving country. Two years later, Hamas was voted in. All of the monies, all of the infrastructure that was created by the Jewish people for the occupants of that land went down the tubes. All monies that have come into that portion of land have been taken by Hamas, used for um, military purposes. Thanks for listening to me. My question to you, Pastor, is because you know the Bible a whole lot better than me, for sure, because I'm just a young Christian. Did God give the Israelites permission to sell, trade, barter, or give away any of that land? Great question. So nowhere that I have found in Scripture, and unless you have found a spot, have I found that that was ever instructed by the Lord. Never to give, buy, to sell, to give off any of that land, no. So you just told me that Israel or Israelites still own that land. They have God's deed to the land. Whether the nations or the world accept God's deed is another situation and story, but as far as what God has given, the deed to the land, I firmly believe it was forever, still stands today, is still the Israeli, Israeli people. Right. You mentioned uh, in passing the argument given by the Arabs that their descendancy is from Ishmael, the firstborn of Abraham. And what you said is exactly right, that the land is passed down through um, the other line, uh, down to Jacob and everything. But even that premise that Arabs are descended from Ishmael is, I think, indefensible. Jews have always been meticulous record keepers. And you know that from the genealogies and scriptures. They can trace their ancestry back to um, Isaac. But the Arabs simply claim out of thin air that we are descended from Ishmael, and there's no basis for that. So even before you get to the argument about which way the covenant went, which it did go through Isaac, even before you get to that, there's broad room to question the Arabs' assertion that they're descended from Ishmael. We have no way of knowing that. Yes. Good point. Yes, that's true. So we look at uh, 
Abraham and Isaac and Ishmael. So Ishmael was the firstborn. They took matters into their own hands, right? And uh, Abraham had a son with the, uh, the servant, and that was Ishmael. He was born before Isaac, but God had promised the promises to Isaac. So you could say that there's a distinction between this and battle of what we're saying is Arabs and Isaac, but uh, what Paul has brought to light, again, reminding us that the Israelis have kept very detailed reports of records of the genealogies where the descendants of Ishmael have not. And so the claim is just based on a claim, not necessarily a proof record of their descendancy. But they're going to claim Ishmael so that they somehow get what they want out of that. And all of that uh, is wrapped up into the Arab nations surrounding Israel. And, and the ones in. Although they came in, you'd have to just kind of read through some of the history of even how they showed up into, into the Gaza Strip area, which is an interesting thing that I won't dive into. You'll have to look up some of that information as to how uh, they came to be residents in that area. Kind of as we conclude, I just want, oh yeah, go ahead. Brian. The exciting thing is that uh, during the millennium, exciting? <laughs> the exciting thing is that during the millennium, the Jews, Israel will have all of the land that was promised to Abraham. And that's a whole lot larger than what it is now. Mm-hmm. Yes, in the millennial kingdom. Uh, and so on, the kind of note as you're looking through and you're trying to process the information that's coming at us, uh, we need to understand and be reminded of a few things. God is sovereign over all of this. Uh, this isn't taking him by surprise. It's not like, oh, I didn't realize this was going to take place. This is all him unfolding as his plan, as he has preordained it to be. He's seen and he knows what's going on. It's all unfolding for a purpose. So we may look at something from our lenses and say, oh my, I like, you know, how can this be? Like, what's going on here? Or also recognize, okay, God, what, are, what is going on is something you're unfolding as well, right? Uh, I'd love to tell you it's going to get better. I would be more prone to say, I think it's going to get worse, and one of the other things that the demonstrations are certainly hitting home on is a remembrance of the nations, all the nations, will turn against Israel. Right? We're told this in Scripture. All of the nations will turn against Israel. We're just seeing the precursor of what eventually will take place. They were confused. They aren't fact-based. They, it's illogical, but it's an evidence marker that says, oh, I guess I can begin to see that this could be something that the entire world will focus on, right? And so we know that that's kind of their indicator and the, the Lord Jesus is going to return to you know, deliver Israel, uh, but the nations will turn. We're just seeing a glimpse of this. Uh, but what we need to remember is kind of what God says. Because I think at times it can be confusing because we're trying to process information. 
right? And our emotions can get in the way. There are children involved. There are innocent people involved. There are a number of things and factors that we look at, and we're not dismissing those things. Praise the Lord, he knows. Praise the Lord, they're in his hands, right? They're in his plan. He's got it. I may not understand it. And it, you know, that humanly speaking, it can, you know, really emotionally get us involved. But we also recognize that God's sovereign over all of that, right? In the midst of it. So we've got to be careful we're not getting sucked into, you know, the, the myths because of an emotional attachment. At the same time, we're not dismissing an emotional response to people. And what's happening. So we pray. We pray for Israel. We pray for believers. There are people who know the Lord Jesus Christ, both Israel, both Palestinian. Right? We know that there are people who know the Lord, and we pray for that. We pray for protection in God's will as as he's got this all going. Right? We pray for those things. And we pray that God, as it unfolds, that, uh, Lord, we trust you with what's taking place. Heavenly Father, I pray. Because it, as we see the media and we see information and we see uh, very strong uh, polled positions, opposing positions rising up, uh, Lord, we want to really stand firm on truth. It doesn't dismiss our uh, emotion in this to understand that there's people's lives and there's innocent lives and there's children and young people and hostages, and there's, this is war. We understand that, and it's very, very deeply emotional for us on that level. But we also recognize, God, that this is uh, your plan and your purposes being played out throughout all of this. It's a result of sin. It's a result of um, sinful hearts uh, that are also feeding this, and it's a result of Satan himself wanting to... Uh, eliminate your purposes and your plans for the future. But Lord, we know that your plans will triumph, that you will, uh, as we saw, your promises always are fulfilled. They always come to pass. So we have to trust you on this, Lord, and sometimes it's a difficult area to, to recognize. So I hope some of the truth and some of the facts help us in processing this information now as we go through listening to the different uh, sources that uh, we uh, are fed in media, social media, etc. So I just pray that this has been helpful for us. We don't have all the answers. We don't see all the future here for sure, uh, but we need to trust you with it in Jesus' name. Amen.